Amen. Continuing in Mark chapter 12. And so today we're going to talk through hypocrites, politicians, and taxes. There is nothing new under the sun. Uh, and they cause stress and consternation in every generation. So that's what we're going to focus on this morning. But also where we are in the, uh, the, the journey through Mark is there are going to be three interactions with the Sanhedrin. This is the first of three. So we've talked about this before, but three of the, the, the main factions and sects within the Sanhedrin, within the Jewish leadership are the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. No, they are not all the same. They each have different focuses. And this morning we're going to deal with the Pharisees first. And over the next two weeks, so the Pharisees are going to deal with taxation. The Sadducees are going to deal with the issue of the resurrection. And then with the scribes, are going to deal with the issue of interpretation. And uh, you'll see why in the weeks to come. But there's a parallel in here. Each one of them begins with an appeal to the teacher. They recognize that he is seen as an authority. They recognize that, that he teaches. They see him as rabbi. But they all challenge him in their own kind of pet areas. And uh, we're going to deal with the first of those this morning. And probably for most of us in this room, as Jonathan joked about earlier, this is, this is a little tough for us. Uh, we don't like paying to the men. As Jonathan said, we don't like taxes. We don't always like what the government does. Um, and Jesus challenges their pride. And, and, and in turn, we're going to challenge our collective pride as well. And so hopefully as we get through the end of this, you'll see in an eternal perspective. And we can reorient our thoughts to the things of God and not the things of man. And hold the things of man loosely. And so that's where we'll end with our application this morning. So in your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 13 to verse 17. And they sent him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And when they brought him one, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to him, render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. May your name be hallowed on our lips. May you be hallowed in our hearts. May we render to you what is due. May we give back to you all that you have given to us. And even in rendering unto Caesar, let us do that to you. Let us glorify you in our minds, our hearts, and our finances, and our marriages, and our children, and our occupation, and our studies. Let us give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. And let us see you and the world around us rightly. Because we are redeemed, because we are in Christ, we don't have to fear those who can hurt the body. We don't have to fear those who can tax our wallets. We don't have to fear those who have temporary power. But because we fear you and the eternal power. But we love you because of your love for us and our adoption into your family. We can live as joyous citizens here on earth. Because we are anxious citizens of heaven and looking forward to our eternity with you. Lord, help us to be faithful here and to store up treasures into heaven. And help your church to be a witness to the world. Let us not respond the way the world does. Let us not speak and live the way the world does. Let us live in such a way that they marvel at our character and our lives. Because they marvel at you because... It flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Lord, give your people 
endurance, give your people patience, give your people wisdom. That we may build up one another and glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to bring to your attention is who is approaching Jesus here? This is key to understanding the entire passage. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. They sent. So these are not the masterminds of the plan. These are the the messengers, the emissaries. And these two groups are very important because they're what you'd call strange bedfellows. The Pharisees are the super religious. They are the ones who hold to every jot and tittle of the law, not just the they love the law so much. They created so many hundreds more so that they could be the only arbiters of God's word. They love the law so much. And then you've got the Herodians. They're the ones who are faithful to Herod. You've got the super religious and then the pseudo religious. So these are the ones who were faithful to Rome. They thought that their salvation and their, their, um, all of their comfort and their safety came from Rome. So they looked to Herod as, as, as their leader. They were Jewish in name, but they were often considered traitors to their people. So you've got two opposing groups who come together with one shared enemy. Those who hate Rome and love the law, the legalists. And those who could care less about the law and love Rome, the antinomians or those without law. And so um, Jesus is a threat to both because both had power and influence over people and both enjoyed where they were. They wanted to keep the status quo. And so Jesus calls for their sins of legalism and their sins of of antinomianism to bear against God's holiness. And he tells them, essentially, when Jesus teaches, the Pharisees are convicted because they hear your works can't save you. And the Herodians hear Rome can't save you. This is uncomfortable to both of them. So they come together with one shared purpose. Matthew gives us a little bit more of a picture of what's going on here in Matthew 22. uh, If you can turn there quickly, that's fine. It'll also be on the screen. Matthew 22, 15 and 16. Then the Pharisees and went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So there's a plot by the Pharisees. The Pharisees are so committed to trapping Jesus that they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, those who they hated, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God. And truthfully, you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. So if you're going to try to trip someone up on a technicality, send a theology student. It's funny because it's true. So they send their their disciples. They know that they will be able to argue over the intricacy of this issue. And they set a trap for him. And this word, this phrase here is to trap him in word. Literally in the Greek, they're going to set a a, a trap for him in the way that he speaks and what he says. But this word is interesting. This is a hunting and fishing word. This is a word that is used to trap prey or to catch some something that is that is not aware of you so that you may kill it. Mark here is applying a word that hunters would use to catch game. Is what they are doing for Jesus. There is sinister motivations here. And so we're, we're getting into the setup. And the setup isn't complete. Because if you're going to set a trap, you got to have bait in the trap. Now, here's the bait. Verse 14. And they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Now, before we get to the question, let's get to the butter up. Because this is honey right here, right? This is a honey-covered grenade. You're going to catch more, more bees with honey. That's what they're doing here. They're, they're, they're trying to, to butter Jesus up. And in, a, in the, the 48 laws of power, this is one of them. The give before the take. If you're going to get something from someone, you catch them off guard. You get them nice and comfortable. And it's interesting that there's this, this list of things that's actually true about Jesus. This is a really fair assessment. I want to look at each one of these quickly before we get into the question. 
And these, as they're written, these are, these are Hebraisms. Basically, they're written in a way that um, Hebrews would, would understand, the way they would talk to one another. So this is a way that you would normally show deference and, um, and uh, adulate or, or, or build up a rabbi. This is very common. Rabbi, we know that you are wise and we know that you do not fear people and, and those, those type of things. So one, he's, he's true or truthful. We know that you don't lie. That's, that's without question. There's like, you know, full sarcasm here. Oh, wh- one more. In Luke 20, 20, it'll be up on the screen. Um, Luke kind of peels back the uh, curtain a little bit. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and to the jurisdiction of the governors. So these spies are buttering him up, hoping to catch him. So they know that he's truthful, that they know that he does not care about anyone's opinions. He's, he's not a people pleaser. He doesn't do this for the sake of, of, of someone else. He doesn't care what people think about him. And he's also not swayed by appearances. This in the Greek is do not see the face of a man. He does not show partiality. Doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. Doesn't care if you're rich or poor. Doesn't care if you're young or old. He does not care about appearances. The message is the same for everyone. This is a a great lesson for us. And probably most importantly, and you truly teach the way of God. They admit that Jesus is faithful in his teaching of God's doctrine and the application of it. All these things are true. But there's a concealed motive here. They're trying to set their trap but they're about as stealthy as Elmer Fudd before they canceled his, his, his rifle and he can't hunt anymore. Um, but Elmer Fudd, who's got the stealth and the diction of a four-year-old, is kind of these, these, these Pharisees who are thinking that, that they're going to set him up. And I can just hear in my head, like, we're hunting Wabi, you know? Like, <laughs> Glad you thought that was as funny as I did. So as they are tracking down Bugs Bunny or whoever Jesus is in this very bad analogy, um, here's the setup, here's the honey, and now here is the spring. They're trying to set the trap here. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? This particular tax is the census tax or head tax. Basically, if you've got a head, you've got to pay tax. That's, that's what it is in Latin. It's a, it's a head tax. Everyone who is alive must pay a tax to Caesar. And you've got to do it with a coin with Caesar's face on it. We'll do that more later. Um, this is why people love the, the tax collectors, obviously. This is not a favored job within, within Israel. But you've got to imagine... Luke tells us that they, they've been plotting and planning this for a moment. How can we catch Jesus? At every turn, they think, we're going to stump him on this. We're going to stump him on this. And, they've, and they're, they're pretty proud of themselves for coming up with this question. Now, we don't really see the significance of this. I mean, it's a legitimate question. We ask, should you pay taxes or, or should you not? But this is actually pretty brilliant. Because what they do is they send one from two of the representative parties. Because with the Pharisees, if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Rome, they're going to say to all the Jews who hate Rome, they're going to they're going to say you're a traitor to your people. And that you care more about Rome, who takes money from your fellow Israelites than you do about your fellow Israelites. But to hedge their bets on the other side, they bring a Herodian with them, someone who's loyal to Rome. And if Jesus says, no, we don't pay taxes, they will turn him in to the governor. And then there will be either imprisonment or fines or possibly death if he's, if he's convicted of insurrection. So they try to paint him into this corner and they give him two options and neither one is going to work. So it's actually pretty brilliant that they bring these two together. And so before we kind of get into this a little bit more, uh, Matthew Henry on this says something really interesting. He says, nothing is more likely to ensnare ministers and then bring them into the middle of disputes about a th- civil authority and its application. I had to think about that. 
I mean, it is a great distraction for gospel ministry. Now, how great of a distraction it is when we have to think about legal implications of things. You have to think about how laws are going to be applied to us or not. Just think about us in our own lives in the last couple of years when it seems like everything's been turned upside down. How much effort and time has gone into debating these things? How much time is taken away from prayer and time in scripture and encouraging one another so that we can make sure we are keeping up on the latest headline and make sure that, that, that we know all of the gray areas. It, it is a great distraction. And Matthew Henry wrote this you know, 400 years ago. And it was no different. It was no different in Jesus' day. If you want to distract a minister from the gospel, get him involved in politics. And this is what they're, they're doing here. And so as I was thinking about it, you know, uh, you should know what's going on in the world. And I think it's helpful to know what's going on in politics, but you shouldn't be governed by it. It shouldn't be the most important thing in your life. It shouldn't be uh, like your, your IV that you needed to live. But it is interesting because I find great interest in our other brothers and sisters who are going through this. You know, we look at what other churches are dealing with. We have churches who are in lawsuits for, for, for meeting. We have, uh, I was listening to a story about a church earlier this week who has lost their insurance because they, their insurance company does not want to insure someone who still insists on coming together and meeting. And if they lose their insurance, then they could possibly be in trouble with the mortgage company. There's a lot of implications here you know, for these, th- these things. You know, where do we comply? Where is, where is it too far? And one of the things the pastor said struck me. He said that the biggest, the biggest barrier to the elders is that now we're spending more time talking about mortgages and insurance and lawsuits and, and legalities than we are actually ministering to people. And so this is, this is important. It's not like we, we shouldn't know about those things, but we have to be careful for, for what they can tend to do. We can tend to make them first things. And, and many get caught in the trap and, and derailed into one side of a debate or another, either the Pharisaical side or the Herodian side, even with the best of intentions, that can dis- distract you from what is, what is truly honoring to God. And I think we have to be aware of that, especially in, in our day and time when these conversations are going to be had more and more. And not that we shouldn't have them and not that we shouldn't be informed and engaged in them, but they should not be our only conversation. And, and our lives and our ministry in the gospel should not hinge on whether we agree with the government's policies or not, and more on that later. So here's the, the, the kind of political setup. And then um, Jesus is going to respond in an atypical fashion, the way he normally does, but it's a typical fashion for, for Jesus. Uh, the language in Matthew is a little bit stronger than it is in Mark. And in Matthew, he says, you hypocrites, why do you put me to the test? But Mark rightly knows that Jesus knows what's going on. Verse 15. But knowing, that but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius. Uh, excuse me. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. As I was thinking about this, this is like when you were a kid and someone sets you up and they go to put your, their, their leg out to, to trip you, but you see it and you step out of the way and they step a little further and fall on their face. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. He's taking these, these schoolyard buildings. He's stepping over the, the stumbling block that they're setting for him. And they're about to take a fall right after it. And he calls them hypocrites. Their hypocrisy. This is a fascinating Greek word because initially it meant actor. Someone who plays a part, someone who wears a mask. But it came to have negative connotations. Because this is a great skill if you're on stage. If you're on stage and you can make me believe that you're someone else, you're very good at your craft. But if you do this in real life, that's a whole different story. If in real life you are a deceiver, you are playing a role, you can, you can draw people in, it's detestable to act like one thing and be another. And this is exactly what Jesus is picking up on here. And he says, why do you put me to the test? This is also an interesting word. reason I, I love word studies so much is because it helps to bring into view what the author's doing. Every time Mark uses this word, most often it is, it is um, translated as tempt. The same word for Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. 
The same word used in Acts when the, the unfaithful in the church put God to the test. And every time it is used in Mark, it applies to the Pharisees. Why do you try to tempt me? Why are you trying to create this temptation for me? And Jesus has the perfect answer. Okay, you want to ask this question? Let's, let's take a step back. Let's look at what you're asking here. You want to pay the, the head tax, which is, a, which is a denarius. And a denarius is the average daily uh, wage for a laborer. It was also, coincidentally, the price of the head tax. If you had a head, you had to pay a denarius. And so he's going to show them their hypocrisy, brings them a coin. Um, and if you haven't seen one of these, most of us, most of you haven't. I actually have. It's, it was kind of cool. I got to see a, a private collection where someone had 30 of these silver coins. It's kind of cool to hold in your hand 30 pieces of silver that Judas would have, would have used to turn over Jesus. But these, these little coins on one side has the head of Tiberius Caesar, his, his, his face. That's significant because there's an inscription above it. He was the son of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar called himself God. Tiberius' official title for himself, son of the divine. So on one side is his face that says son of God. On the other side is a picture of him sitting on a throne with a crown on his head and a robe around him. And the inscription on that side is Pontifex Maximus. That means high priest or literally in in Latin, highest bridge builder. So on one side, he's son of God. On the other side, he's high priest on a coin. And when Jesus says, get me a denarius and they bring one back, they just so happen to have one. So in their concern about what we do, they are carrying around these coins that are the epitome of blasphemy. And this great scandal of carrying around a coin, a man claiming to be God, a man claiming to be high priest. Just as a side note, fun fact, Pontifex Maximus is one of the official titles of the Pope. Calls himself highest bridge builder or high priest. It is blasphemy to the son of God in the highest order. And so in that, they are truly the Roman Catholic Church. And it also adds to the... Uh, the, the uncomfortability with tax collectors because they're carrying around these blasphemous coins and exacting usury against their people. And so they bring one. They bring one of these coins that they have themselves. And then Jesus asked a very important question. And they brought him one. He said to him, whose likeness and inscription is this? The likeness and the inscription, both of which we just mentioned. Whose likeness? Same word for that we see in creation. Let us make man in our likeness. Let us make man in our image. Whose image is this? So Jesus right here is drawing a distinction between this bears the image of Caesar. Whose image do you bear? And which one do you think is more important? Whose image is this? Who does this belong to? Why are you so concerned with something that belongs to Caesar? But the irony here is that we have the Son of God recognizing the authority of the Son of God, small g, small s, small g. The true Son of God recognizing that this small s, small g God has authority here on earth. Whose face is on it? That's why he can answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He fully recognizes that these these coins, they belong to Caesar. And so I want to talk about that for just a moment. What belongs to Caesar? And let's let's think about it. These are these are silver coins. And, you know, who really owns silver? We know that it's God's. But these silver coins. If any still exist today, who cares about Caesar? Who cares whose face on it is on it? How long do these things really last? How far does his reach really extend? Because if any of you were to pick up one of those coins today, you couldn't read Latin and you wouldn't know whose face it was. It would mean nothing to you. So Jesus, who has eternal purview, can say this means nothing in terms of eternity. And then I don't know if we've ever thought about it. But what is money anyway? 
Like what gives it value? You know, the old saying that something is only worth what someone will, will pay for it. How much is it worth to you? Then it had a figure attached to this coin because that's what Rome determined. And now ours, I don't know if you've ever taken money out of your wallet, if any of you even still carry money or wallets anymore. Um, you should. But if you look at it, it says this notice, legal and tender for all debts, public and private. It is a Federal Reserve note. We carry this in our money, but it's not in our pockets, but it's not ours. It's printed by the Federal Reserve 24 hours a day, 365. And these things have no value unless we give them value, unless our society gives them value. But yet we can place eternal importance on them. Well, I have to do this and I have to do that. And, and, and we can be so governed by our, our finances that we make necessary and immediate things, ultimate things. And I think right now, you know, cryptocurrency, and I don't even know what it is, but it's a great example because it's really valuable until it isn't. It's really a thing until it isn't like we're, we're seeing this in, in real time. We're seeing spikes of value of some kind of currency if it's just gone the next day. And this is what Jesus is saying. If you have an eternal perspective, this stuff doesn't last. Give it to Caesar. Who cares? Yes, Caesar has authority here. He has a kingdom here. Big deal. But he's not God. There's a really extreme example of this. That you're, in, in every era, there has been inflation. There has been taxation and all these things. But probably the most extreme, one of the most extreme we've seen is the, the, the Weimar Republic. And I don't know if you, how many of you are students of history. But after World War I, when uh, Germany's not on the right side of the war, so they lost... Uh, there was a treaty of Versailles that was brought against them. And basically, they, they had to pay all of the, the uh, victorious nation's uh, tariffs. And also, they went into debt to, to finance the war. And so, they were in a bad situation as a country. The rest of Europe started uh, levying taxes against them. And so, their inflation was going through the roof. Um, they were in massive debt, massive inflation from World War I to World War, War II. They, were, they became destitute as a nation. It, it, was, just, it, it, was, it was crazy. They actually, this led to the Nazis because it put people in such debt. Let me give you an idea. A gallon of milk, which would, which would normally be a reasonable amount, by the end of or the, the height of the inflation in the Weimar Republic would be the equivalent of $60 today. Things like eggs and butter and normal staples became more than someone would make in a week. And this money that they, that they printed, uh, there, there are pictures of people paying their grocery bills with wheelbarrows full of money. It can be taken in a second. The value is determined by the strength of the nation. So what, when the nation isn't strong anymore, we put our trust in things that can be taken away at any moment. And this is what Jesus is getting here. Yes, Caesar has authority here, but so what? Do you know the difference between the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's? It is more important to know who belo- what belongs to each, and then you can easily render to one another. So this should give us perspective. This should give us comfort as we submit to our own wicked leaders. Because Jesus is not saying submit to Caesar because he's a Christian and because he, he fears the Lord. This is what Augustine said on this, on this passage. And, and remember, uh, Augustine ministered just a few hundred years after Jesus. He's still in the, the, the throngs of the Roman Empire. And he says, Julian was an unbelieving emperor. He was an apostate, a wicked man and an idolater. And yet Christian men served as soldiers under this unbelieving emperor. When the cause of Christ was concerned, they acknowledged no commander but him that was in heaven. When the emperor wished them to worship idols or burn incense to them, they preferred honoring God before him. But when he said, draw out in order of battle, march against that nation, they obeyed him. They drew a distinction between their eternal master and their temporal master. And yet, we're submissive to their temporal master for the eternal master's sake. This is a tough balance to be in. But both of these things are true. We're citizens here and we 
We should obey as, as well as we should until it causes us to disobey our God. And everything that we do here, we do to honor our God. And so when Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and God the things are God's, I want us to think about this for a moment. What are the things of God? What are God's? What belongs to Caesar? Can you tell the difference? I mean, an easy way to think about it is the things that God has given to us, we give back to God. We use, you know, the, the simple sayings of time, talents, and treasure. God gives you 24 hours in a day. He gives you, he gives you days that are, that are, that are ordered, that are, that are set out before you, and you use them to his glory. He's given you talents that are unique to you that no one else has that you can use for his glory. He's given you treasures. He's given you money and, and, and possessions. You give those things to him by the way that you use them. You set them before him in submission and say, God, these are yours. You store up treasures in heaven instead of treasures on earth. Does that mean we shouldn't invest and get the best interest rate and, and, and use out these resources wisely? Absolutely not. We should. Don't be a fool with your money. But don't be a fool and think that your money is going to solve all your problems or you're going to find real comfort and real security in your money. We hold these things loosely. Amen. But really what's going on here is this is a, a heart question. Can I separate the things that are of man from the things that are from God? What has your heart? What are you so closely connected to that it hurts? Think about giving it up. Do you put more effort into the laws of God and the things of God or the things of man? Do the things of man have your heart and have your, and have your mind that you're constantly thinking about it, constantly investing in it, that you are poor in the things of God? Every one of us in this room has had this struggle. This is common to humanity. But it's important to recognize this. Do we know the difference between the things that are man's and the things that are God's? This is a citizenship question. So before we get into our application, I want to look at 1 Peter 2. Jesse mentioned it earlier. We read it earlier. I don't want to spend a few moments on that. So in 1 Peter 2, I love the book of 1 Peter. When I preached through this a few years ago, Entitled the sermon or the, the, the series Hope Through Suffering. This is written to people who are facing persecution. Real persecution. Before you read this, think about this. Peter wrote this to people who are being tortured, who are being killed for the gospel, who are hated for their, their faith. And this is how Peter speaks. Picking up in verse 11 of chapter 2. This is, excuse me, this is right after he tells them that you are living stones, that you are a kingdom of priests, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You are kings. You are royal. You are sons of the king. And yet, verse 11, you are sojourners and exiles. This is who you are right now. Eternally, you are kings. Right now, you're aliens. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And when he says Gentiles here, he's not only speaking to Jews, he's speaking to unbelievers. There is one category here. Believers, keep yourself honorable against unbelievers. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to be good and model citizens. We are to be joyful examples of our redemption. So that when the Gentiles see us, they speak, they don't speak against, or excuse me, they speak against you as evildoers. And may see your good deeds and they may glorify God. This is even harder. Admittedly, this is hard for me. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This would be a hard pill to swallow when I saw my brothers and sisters in church being punished for doing good. 
But how are we to live? Verse 16, live as people who are free because you are in Christ. You are free. If you are in him, you are a royal priesthood. You are living stones. And not using that freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. There is a distinction there. Fear God. Honor the emperor. The emperor, just like everyone else, just like every Gentile, you are to honor. Even if he is wicked and evil and hates you. But there is a love for the brotherhood that is distinct. And I think this often people miss. The love that we show for the saints and for the church is different than the honor we give to the authorities and those outside. Those we are covenanted with, those who are covered by the blood of Christ, those who we who who fear the Lord. There is a a a love and a connection there that is distinct from the world. And so yet we walk in this dual citizenship. And so Jesus teaches this and all of these implications, they marveled at him. Who talks like this? Who can get out of the perfect trap and convict everyone equally? The true son of God can. They didn't expect this answer. They're stopped in their tracks. And they're also caught in the same snare. The setup that they were preparing for Jesus is now game, set, match. They have nothing to say. Because like we saw earlier in chapter 8, They're not setting their minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so this truly never was a temptation for Jesus. He was never worried. He didn't wonder what he was going to say. But in our last moments, I want to see if this is a temptation for us. So we're going to talk about three application points. And I know I did three last week. Uh, It just happened that way. I didn't do it on purpose. So I want to take a step aside from the passage. Now that you know what was going on there. And let's ask ourselves, what does this mean for us right now today? What temptations and what realities should we understand? And let's dig in here and let's dig into our hearts for a moment. So the first one is the temptation of money. So I'm going to begin in case this is hard for you. I'm going to begin with my heart. Uh, And so this is something that was a great lesson for me as a young believer. Um, I used to lie and cheat on my taxes. That came easy because pre-Christ, I was, a, I was a thief and a liar. And through the conviction of the Lord using my wife, um, the Lord really convicted me of this and, and taught me of this. And now I'm a mature Christian and I love paying taxes every year. Uh, it's my least favorite time of year right next to Christmas. Um, but in this conviction, I had to have a conversation with myself and it was probably the Holy Spirit having a conversation with me because these are not thoughts that my flesh would have. Do you really trust the Lord? Why do you feel the need to lie? Why do you feel like if you hide a couple hundred dollars here or, or there and pay a little less in taxes that you'll be better off? Can't the Lord provide that? You know, how humbling it is to, to, to go through this. In your mind, what am I saying by saying I trust more in my riches than I care about honoring the Lord? And this was very convicting for me. But it was it it was was helpful. And I really had to stand on is my faithfulness to the Lord and my integrity worth the couple hundred dollars that I'm saving? And then I really realized how greedy and foolish and immature I was. And it's still not easy. I am to be, be honest. I, I, I hate giving money to the government every year. But you know what? It's just money. And the Lord every year has helped me release my grip on that and helped me untach, yeah, unattach my heart from it. And so for us, if we place money in its proper place under God as his tool There's great contentment in that because we can pay our taxes. 
We can buy what, what we need. We can give it away, trusting that God will provide for his people. That God will provide for us just like he does the lilies and the ravens. And if money has no hold on you, you are truly blessed. But everyone in this room, at some point, I'm sure, has struggled with the hold that money can have over you. Stressing about how am I going to pay bills? Or stressing about how am I going to spend all this money? If you, if, you have, if you haven't been there yet, it will happen at some point, and it doesn't last long. But this love of money that becomes the root of all evil, we have to be careful of it, and we have to guard against it. We're going to be talking about this on Wednesday, but Hebrews 13 is helpful here. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with whatever you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's stop there. Think about that. How can we be content with money? Knowing that the Lord said, I will never leave you and never forsake you. That is the greatest cure for stressing out about money. My God owns everything. And he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He will always provide for me. And therefore, I can live in contentment. And to take it a step further in the encouragement, verse 6 says, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen. Amen? Amen. Number two, the temptation of politics. This consumes people and ministries. This is setting our eyes on the things of man. Again, I'm not going to say that you shouldn't vote and you shouldn't know what's going on in culture. I will never say that. But if you're consumed by it, shame on you. If you've been alive for more than six months, you know whatever we're worried about now, we're going to be worried about something else next month and six months from now and a year from now. But it's like quicksand. The more you get in, the more you struggle, the more it has a hold on you. But what we are doing when we elevate politics is we are, we are taking spiritual problems and we are trying to give them worldly solutions. Because ultimately, any issue that we debate over in politics or that we get worried about has a spiritual root. It has a spiritual foundation. My favorite verse on politics in all of Scripture, easy to remember, Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. You ever think about that? Next time you stress about whoever's in office or whoever's not in office or what's going on, do you think that, that he is a, like he's a puppet? God is directing him wherever he wants. If he's Caesar, he's God's Caesar. If he's president, he's God's president. For better or for worse, God can use the righteous vessel as well as the unrighteous for his glory. And in our nation, he uses mostly unrighteous. Amen? Amen. And so if God is ultimately in control, if he directs the heart of the king and the governor and the school board, it should give us a lot of comfort. So a question often comes up, especially within church circles. Is this a gospel issue? When you deal with a particular policy, is this a gospel issue? Well, 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 then this is a gospel issue. Let me say this clearly. The gospel is a gospel issue. The gospel, reconciliation to Jesus Christ is a gospel issue. You are sinners. Everyone else out there who is struggling on what, what side of this issue to vote on, they are sinners. And the only thing that will bring us together is the gospel of Jesus Christ. However, the gospel must inform and instruct everything in our lives. We cannot vote. We cannot read the news. We cannot put on our clothes without knowing how the gospel directs and informs our lives. So I just want to give you a few examples. When we think about the, the temptation of politics, how do we look at certain areas through a gospel lens? One, the economy. Uh, certainly an area of concern 
right now as we see rising inflation and shortages and products and all that stuff. But going back to the point earlier, God will provide for his people. Don't you think the Lord knows what you need? Amen. He gives the flowers, the air and the sun and the water that they need. If he can do that, he can care for you. Amen. And if you are in Christ, he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So even if we are wheeling wheelbarrows of money to pay for milk, God will make sure you will have cereal. Commerce. We worry about jobs and industries and things like that. Let me take the weight off of your shoulders. Uh, You're not responsible for whole economies and people's actions and whole companies. What you're responsible for is to be a man or woman of just weights and measures. For you to be diligent, for you to be hardworking, for you to be honorable. So that even if the Gentiles around you who hate you mock you, they will marvel because you glorify God. We are to work like we are adopted. Because in Christ, we are sons of the kings and we are royal, even if we are slaves here on earth. That should be a great comfort, but it is a challenge. You can go through many others. You deal with abortion. But this should clearly tell us that the image of God is on every person. That God knows us and knits us together in our mother's wombs. And that is our intrinsic value. And likewise, you do with issues like racism. And so we must see that we are image bearers. Biblically, there is one race. We are under Adam in sin. The only hope for those under Adam, we're all in that together, is to be under Christ. Is to turn to him and repent. And it is wicked anytime. Someone puts color above calling, puts ethnicity above election. Because with everything you read in Scripture, there are sheep and there are goats. There are those in Christ and there are those in not. The only time the, the, the dividing wall of hostility will be broken down is in Christ, is what Paul tells us. That's why the Jews and the Gentiles wanted nothing to do with one another, can be one, can truly be brothers and sisters. So does the gospel apply to all of these things? Absolutely. Does the gospel inform all of these things? Absolutely. But we've got to be careful to guard our hearts that we're not thinking that if society changes, then hearts will change. Apart from the preaching of the word, apart from repentance and faith, we may get along for a while. We may agree for a moment. But if you want eternal reconciliation... You want to be united with those who are like you and those who are different than you. The gospel is what brings us together. And the gospel is the only place that gives us true comfort in our finances. Hope for peace among people. So the final one. This is the positive one. Dual citizenship. Philippians 3.20 helps us in this. Uh, We could also look at Hebrews and... Look at Ephesians. But Philippians 3.20 in a simple verse is helpful. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We talked about this on Wednesday. If you are in Christ. Your citizenship is in the heavenly Jerusalem. With the angels. You have an inheritance that is unfading, imperishable. That is your real identity. That is who you are. But yet we await that time as we, as we live here. We hold the things of the world loosely. Naked if I come into this world, naked will I go out. They can be taken at any moment. So that should make us ideal citizenship, citizens. So we can view our representation and our taxation the way Jesus does. Give it to Caesar. 
Give it to the government. Your treasure is stored up in heaven. That is who you are because you are mine. I have called you right now. We would be less worried about our finances and politics and all these things if we remember Jesus is preparing a room for us. Jesus is storing up treasure for us that moth and rust will not destroy. That he went away. Our bridegroom has gone away to prepare the honeymoon suite for the bride. That is our identity. And our citizenship is is here for now. While we're here, let's be a good bride. Let's be good sons. And live in a way that honors our father. Until we're asked to not honor our father. We can pay taxes and we can follow laws until we are commanded to do things that dishonor God or that God strictly forbids. Then we can and should and will stand up against them. This is hard. This is really hard for me because if you've talked with me for more than five minutes, you know I'm a natural rebel. This is hard for many of us. But like in all things, let us pray that we can follow Christ even in this. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for encouraging us and convicting us. Thank you that your word builds us up where we need it and tears us down when we need it. Thank you that you own the cattle on a thousand hills. That is to say, you own every blade of grass, every leaf on every tree, every ant in the ground, they are yours. Not even a hair falls from our head without you knowing. Let us live like that. Let us approach our finances like that. Let us approach our life in society Let us approach our unity and our reconciliation and our desire to be loved and our desire to be accepted in light of our sovereign God, in light of our citizenship in heaven. May we, the church, be different than everywhere else on earth. May we link arms with those who we disagree on secondary issues. May we be a place where every tongue, tribe, and nation is unified under the blood of Jesus Christ. May we be a place and a people who are joyful in all things. Because we fear God. And we want everyone who meets us to glorify Him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.